That's an external adversary. God's going to raise up an internal adversary. Because all those people that, God, that Solomon's been oppressing, all the forced labor, all now the gold is funneling into my palace and not your homes now, that's created some resentment too. And now that Solomon's becoming weak from external attacks, then internal rebellion begins to happen. Oh, he's too busy dealing with Hadad. Now we can rebel. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, one of Solomon's servants, rebelled against the king. He was an Ephraimite from Zeradah, whose mother was a widow named Zerah. This is what prompted him to rebel against the king. All these were real quick summaries. But now God is going to zero on Jeroboam and give you more about his story because Jeroboam is the new main character. He's the new main character. Jeroboam was a talented man. And when Solomon saw that the young man was an accomplished worker, he made him the leader of the work crew of the tribe of Joseph. At that time when Jeroboam had left Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the road. And the two of them were alone in the open country. And Ahijah was wearing a brand new robe. And he grabbed the robe and tore it into twelve pieces. And he told Jeroboam, take ten pieces, for this is what Yahweh the God of Israel says. Look, I'm about to tear the kingdom from Solomon and Solomon's hand, and I will give you ten tribes to you. He will retain one tribe for the, my servant David's sake and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I am taking the kingdom from him because they have abandoned me and worshipped the Sidonian goddess Astarte, the Moabite god Kamosh, the Ammonite god Milcom. They have not followed my instructions by doing what I approve and obeying my rules and regulations. Like Solomon's father David did, I will not take the whole kingdom from his hand. I will allow him to be the ruler for the rest of his life for the sake of my chosen servant David who kept my commandments and rules." I will take the kingdom from the hand of his son and give ten tribes to you, and I will leave his son one tribe so my servant David's dynasty may continue to serve me. And Jerusalem the city I have chosen as my home. I will select you, and you will rule over you all that you desire to have, and you will be king over Israel. You must obey all I commanded you to do. Follow my instructions to do what I approve. Keep my rules and commandments like my servant David did. Then I will be with you and establish you as a lasting dynasty, dynasty, as I did with David. I will give you Israel. I will humiliate David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam escaped to Egypt and found refuge with King Shishak of Egypt. He stayed in Egypt until Solomon died. This is interesting. The prophet of God comes in. And what you have is a new Saul and a new David. And just like David, Saul had the kingdom torn away from him. And the prophet went to David and anointed him and said, God is now choosing you to be a new dynasty over his people. God is doing the same thing. So Solomon is now being rejected by God. And then the prophet is going to a new person from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, if you remember anything way back in the Genesis, in Genesis 49... Jacob blessed his sons, but he also took the two sons of Joseph and elevated them to the same height as all his sons. His grandchildren got an equal blessing to all of his children, thus making 13 children. Ephraim got the headship blessing 
and so did Judah. They both got headship. Judah's headship became realized with David. Ephraim's headship is now becoming realized with Jeroboam. So God is fulfilling that promise of headship now. And the first person he goes to after Judah is Ephraim. And the prophet is now ordaining the tribe of Ephraim under the headship of Jeroboam to become the next king. Become the next king. Now notice how he illustrates this. Prophets love illustrations. He takes his robe and he rips it up into 12 pieces. And he gives 10 to Jeroboam. This reminds you of Saul as well. Because remember when Saul was begging, please, please, please don't abandon me. And he grabbed a hold of his robe of um, Samuel and Samuel walked away and it ripped the corner of the robe off. And Samuel turned on and said, just as you ripped the corner of my robe, God is ripping the kingdom from you. So now God takes that back up again and instead of one piece, because Saul was losing the entire kingdom, now it's 12 pieces. And so God is reinvoking an old image from a long time ago to help Solomon and Jeroboam realize that God's not different. This is how he always operates. He doesn't play favorites. So that's important to understand. The other thing is, some of you are probably thinking the math doesn't work. So remember, there's originally 13 tribes. That doesn't make sense to you. Go back to Genesis 49 audio. Hey, there's 13 tribes. One tribe doesn't count because that's Levi. They're all priests. So there's 12 tribes politically speaking. So he's going to let Solomon's descendants keep one tribe. That's Judah. So that leaves you 11 tribes. And then he's going to give 10 tribes to Jeroboam. You're like, well, who's the missing tribe? And thus becomes the great conspiracies of the missing tribes and da-da-da-da-da. And the lost tribe. And I go, no, it's not. It's one of two tribes. There's a good chance that it could be Simeon because Simeon has been absorbed into Judah over the years and they don't politically really count anymore. But it's also possible, and I put the references in my notes, there are many times throughout the rest of Kings that it will mention, and Judah went out to attack the kingdoms of the north and Benjamin was with them. Benjamin was with them. Benjamin was with them. Benjamin was with them. It may be possible that Benjamin has been absorbed into Judah too. A lot of scholars are confused here. There's no missing lost tribe, but it is kind of confusing. It might be that a partial part of Benjamin is mixed in with Judah or something like that. It could be at this time, politically speaking, there's now only 11 distinct political tribes. Because Benjamin, who was a teeny, teeny, teeny little tribe that was right on the border of Judah, and technically Jerusalem belonged to Benjamin, but when David became king, he took Jerusalem from Benjamin and says, it's now mine. It could be that Benjamin has just been absorbed into it along with Simeon. Maybe Simeon has become more distinct over the time. But what we do know is that God is not really interested in the politics He's more interested in them knowing God or if they don't know God. And so maybe if you were a Jew reading this, you would totally know the politics and it would totally make sense. But God says, I don't really care about that. This is a theology book about me and how to know me, not about what's politically happening in their government at that time period. So this isn't some mysterious lost tribe. 
It's just politically speaking, things are not cut and dry anymore like they were back with Jacob, which that makes sense to us. Even the United States of America is not so cut and dry, politically speaking. And what, I mean, like, right, half of one state loves this president, the other half hates this, and they don't like each other, and I mean, it's a mess. So humans are humans, and that's happening in Israel too. But here's the other thing. He very clearly says to him, if you obey my commands. Same thing he told Solomon. It really comes down to obedience to the covenant. This is what I warned Solomon of multiple times. But he also says this, if you obey my covenants, I will make a lasting dynasty with you like I did with David. God is making it very clear that if you obey me throughout your entire life, Jeroboam, I will potentially make the Jeroboamic covenant with you. And just like David will forever have a descendant on the throne, you will forever have a descendant on the throne. Now, some people ask, well, how can that be possible? Like, isn't Jesus from Judah? How can he have an everlasting dynasty if Jesus is from Judah? Well, really simple. Later on down the line, Jeroboam and Judah would probably intermarry with each other, and Jesus would be both. God can make it all work. God can make it work. In fact, we're going to see intermarriage between kings later in the book anyways. Technically, Jesus is a descendant of David, but when we get to Ahab, he's also the descendant of one of the worst kings that Israel has ever seen. A king that was under the judgment of God. Because humans like to make everything complicated and messy. This begins the Exodus analogies. I told you at the beginning that there's going to be this theme of Israel being the new exodus and god is going to be doing this so now what we have is we have solomon as the new pharaoh solomon's a new pharaoh he's a taskmaster who is oppressing them and even whipping them metaphorically speaking later when jeroboam comes back we're going to be told that the people are crying out for mercy and they're asking to be let go from the yoke that solomon's put on them and so you have this idea that solomon's the new Pharaoh. But Jeroboam is going to be portrayed as the new Moses. And he's going to ask for his people to be let go, so to speak. But Jeroboam makes a big mistake. When Solomon tries to kill him, remember, just like when Pharaoh tried to kill Moses, Moses fled. So now you, what you have is Solomon is the new Pharaoh. And just like Pharaoh, he oppresses the people who is Israel. Then God raises up a new person, Jeroboam, just like Moses. Pharaoh finds out about it, Solomon. He begins to attack Moses and Jeroboam, try to kill him. And Jeroboam slash Moses runs away. And then eventually when Solomon dies, like when Pharaoh dies, Jeroboam is going to come back and ask for my people to be let go and freed. And so there's this whole new theme here. But there's one little thing that throws a wrench into this analogy. He flees to Egypt. My goodness, he doesn't even take the throne yet, and he's already screwing up. He hasn't even become king yet. He's already violating the Deuteronomic regulations of the king. And Solomon's already learned that seeking Pharaoh as a protector doesn't last long. And now he's going to Egypt to seek Pharaoh as a protector. He's made a fatal mistake, fatal mistake of fleeing to Egypt for protection. 
chapter 11, verse 41. The rest of the events of Solomon's reign, including all of his accomplishments and his wise decisions, are recorded in the scroll called the Annuals of Solomon. Solomon ruled over Israel for Jerusalem for 40 years. Then Solomon passed away and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam replaced him as king. Now, we don't know what the Annuals of Solomon is. We've never found it. But basically what God and the narrator is saying is, Solomon had many, 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 many accomplishments. But I don't really care. Because ultimately speaking, this is a book about God and how to know him. And what I was really interested in was telling you the story of not Solomon's kingdom and his accomplishments and his power and his politics and his reforms. I was interested in telling you a story about Solomon's heart. And yes, there were times I told you about his wealth and politics, but that was only to illustrate his heart. And remember that. The Bible is not interested in giving you a history lesson. The Bible is interested in giving you a lesson about God's heart and our heart in relation to his. And yes, sometimes he'll talk about history and politics and science or whatever in order to illustrate that, but that's not the main goal. It's the main goal. That's why after every single king, he'll say, and are not all the other accomplishments of the king listed in the... And you're like, that would be really cool to know all that stuff. Yeah, but that's a different textbook. And we haven't found that textbook. Maybe we will. Maybe we don't. I don't know. So that's the end of Solomon's reign. This is a man who started off really, really well. He came from a flawed father, but overall a father who desired God and knew God. A father that's one of his last dying wishes, even though it was mixed with a little sore blood play, also said, my greatest desire for you is to be a man who obeys God. Solomon, when he begins to reign, he makes mistakes, but we all make mistakes when we start anything, and we even make mistakes when we've been doing something for 50 years. But overall, when God came to him, he said, what do you want? And Solomon got the whole point of the Bible and said, I'm flawed. I can't do it. My works won't save me. I don't have enough intelligence. I don't have ability. I need your wisdom, Yahweh. And he surrendered to the kingship of God. And God was so pleased with that. The God who knows your heart better than anybody else. And so I'll give you everything else. But then he began to make treaties. Oh, that's what everybody does. Collect wealth. Everybody hangs out with people like this in social events. Everybody pursues these incomes and money and big houses and multiple cars and all this kind of stuff. Oh, everybody goes to parties. Doesn't everybody struggle with approval of other people, wanting other people's acceptance and that kind of stuff? This is all just innocent stuff. It's just, it's just yeah, I'm buying this. Yeah, maybe I spend too much. But, I mean, come on. Got to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah, maybe I give in to peer pressure on social acceptance way too much. But look at all this other stuff I'm doing over here. Yeah, I'm praying and all that kind of stuff, but then eventually you're getting distant and distant and distant and over time. The people in the beginning loved Solomon. His wisdom was actually for them. He was ruling wisely even on prostitutes. Who cares about prostitutes? 
And yet he was even showing wisdom for them and showing that he cared about them and that their rights mattered just as much as anybody else's rights. The lowliest people in the kingdom were benefiting from his wisdom. And he was being a blessing to everybody. He was providing food for everybody. Everybody was content and happy. But there were cracks in the dam. Because there was all that stuff from David's reign and Joab's reactions. And Solomon had his own issues too and his own brokenness and his own faults. And at first it looked like he was an amazing, wise politician that we all wanted to vote for. And it looked like he'd built this great utopian American dream or that he was going to offer all these things. But underneath, there's still cracks. There's still snakes in the garden. There's still an undercurrent of unhappiness. But because people had so much prosperity and they had so much material comfort and wealth that most people were willing to overlook all the faults in their leaders they think that this guy is going to bring hope. This guy is going to bring change. This guy is going to bring this and that and that. And they're overlooking things. They're overlooking all the cracks and all the flaws and all that kind of stuff because overall, life is pretty good. But slowly over time, over time, over time, we talked about this in the New Age movement, things have been changing. And things have been getting worse. And we were promised the American dream of utopia. The problem is we were promised it by, a, don't get me wrong, the Constitution's great. It's way better than any other document that any other country has. But it was still a document written by flawed men in a flawed world with a flawed system of making it happen. And it's a pretty good job considering, but it's still flawed. It's still been executed, interpreted, and implemented by flawed people, flawed governments, both men and women in the government, flawed parties. No matter how much we constantly think, this guy is going to change everything. This woman is going to change everything. Everything is going to be awesome and great. They fail us. And this is the thing with Solomon. They really, really thought utopia had come. If anything, this is closer to utopia than anybody has ever gotten. The Bible even makes that clear. Solomon is wiser than anybody has ever been. He's wealthier than everybody has ever been. More people have been taken care of than any other person in any other country has ever been taken care of. God blessed them more than any other time period in Israel's history. And yet despite that, it was still being ruled by flawed humans. And if anything that God Bible is trying to tell you is the utopia is not possible. Stop looking to the conservative Republican Party. Stop looking to the Democratic Party. Don't get me wrong. America is one of the greatest countries in the world. And I am so glad that my daughters are being raised in this country compared to any other country. Because we don't have the corruption like other countries have in government. I don't have to worry about my own government coming in and slaughtering my children in my own house. I don't have to worry about a violent, bloody coup overtake of the government. I don't have to worry about, I mean, overall, yes, God bless America. But God bless America. And God blessed us so that we'd be a blessing to the world. And we can't forget that. Because unfortunately, over the years, we've begun to worship our government. We've begun to worship patriotism and the American dream. 
and it's all self-serving. And we need to hold this tension between, yes, I can't, I'm not going to bash America and act like it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the world and like you Americans, the government. Because my goodness, if you've ever gone anywhere else in the world, you realize that that's just narrow-minded ignorance. I'm not going to ignore the amazing things that God has done in our country and the amazing people that he's raised up and all that kind of stuff. The amazing people that have fought so that I can have my daughters in this kind of a country. I thank God for all that. But this government is not my God. This government is not my hope. It is not my change. It is not my utopia. It is not my salvation. And I'm not going to pledge my undying allegiance to a country that is not what God gave me. What he gave me was a savior and his cross. And we need to remember that. They shifted their focus from God and it became on the utopia, political prosperity, and economic prosperity of the country. And they were living the American dream. And they overlooked a lot of things in their leaders and their government because, hey, at least life is pretty good. But eventually those leaders became more and more compromised, and now it's going to blow up in their face, and we're just down spiral from here. And it's just judges amplified in a much bigger form. And this is why I say we are not to be anti or pro. We are to follow Yahweh. And what Yahweh says is that I am your only hope for salvation, contentment, joy, the kingdom of God, salvation, and redemption. But at the same time, I love America because Yahweh saved me to be a blessing to the world. And to be anti-America and to bash it is not the Great Commission. And to praise it and glorify it and act as if it is our hope and our utopia and our salvation is to be idolatrous, betraying Yahweh and his salvation. And we need to embrace the tension. And that's the lesson here right now. Solomon created an Israelite dream. But they shifted it from Yahweh to the dream. And the dream is going to blow up in their face and kill them. What they should have done is kept true to Yahweh and been a blessing to the world. You can love America and pledge your allegiance only to God. It is possible. You can love China and pledge your allegiance to God. You can love Russia and pledge your allegiance to God. Christianity is the only one that makes it possible to do something like that. And this is the lesson that we need to learn from this. Because right now, I think you and I are going to relate more to all the chapters that are going to follow than the chapters that we've just been reading.